Hello from the newsroom of the Financial Times in London. I'm Katie Martin. Today we hear from Melinda Gates about her work to promote more inclusive global growth through widening access to the internet. She tells John Thornhill why she thinks doomsday scenarios about robots stealing jobs are misguided. Can you tell us how did the Commission on Technology and Inclusive Development come about? Well, this commission came about because I would go to all these many global forums and we were all seemed to be talking about the doom and gloom that was happening with technology, where the future was headed, that, you know, jobs were going to be destroyed. What is AI going to be of the future? And I thought, you know, we really need to pull together a large group to think about this and think about what's the realism that's going to happen with technology and where are there going to be gaps and how do we make sure that technology is for everyone? I didn't hear people having that global conversation and I thought there was a need for it. So who did you bring together to work on this commission? We brought together the finance minister from Indonesia. We've brought together two professors from Oxford. We've brought together Strive Misiyawa from Africa and a whole bunch of commissioners, a foreign minister from the Netherlands, many people from Africa and Southeast Asia. And together, what we're trying to do is to look at all the factors, positive and negative, about technology and say, how can countries plan for the digital age, plan in a more cohesive way, and put the right policies in place so that digital really serves their entire population, not just a segment of the population? Right. Now, you've produced two reports which are going to be discussed at the World Bank and IMF annual meetings in Bali this week. Could you give us the one-sentence summary of the findings of those reports? The findings so far from the reports are that, yes, technology is a tool, but it's a tool that can be used for either good or for evil. And that if we put the right policies in place, we can use it as a force to bring about more equity and prosperity in the world. Can we talk a little more about those pathways to prosperity, as you call them? What needs to be done to encourage good outcomes? Well, I think policymakers need to look at how do they use technology, for instance, to connect people to markets. We see all kinds of examples around the world in agriculture where when done right, more people have access to put their crops on the market. Most people in a lot of low-income countries are farmers, so that's a huge plus for them. Or if they can get more for their crop or not be taken by the middleman who's not giving them the right market price, that's a force for good. Another one is to bring more poor into services in the formal economy. And another area is to move people who might be working in the informal sector of the economy, actually bringing them into the formal economy with digital tools. Can you give us some examples of where that's already happening? Sure. In the example of bringing people from the informal sector into the formal, there's a service that's been used. It started in Kenya in 2007, then it moved to Tanzania in 2009. Now it's all over. It's called M-Pesa. It's in Bangladesh and in the Philippines. And it's a mobile money service. And what it means that is if you're a poor person living in a remote rural area, on your basic cell phone, not on a smartphone, but on your basic cell phone, you can save a dollar a day, two dollars a day. And instead of getting on the bus and having your money stolen from you or not being welcomed at the bank when you get there, you can literally save every day a little bit of money. So when the school fees come due, you have the money to put your child in school. That is a road to prosperity for a rural family, a rural farming family, as well as many others. That's just one example. And we're seeing it at scale now in many, many countries. 
Now, as you were alluding to earlier, much of the discourse about the fourth industrial revolution is pretty negative. It's all about how robots are going to destroy jobs and widen inequality. But you argue that fear is a poor guide to policy, and that as long as we follow these pathways to prosperity, we are going to create new jobs and encourage inclusive growth. Why are you so positive about this? What makes you so optimistic that we can follow these good pathways? Well, perhaps my own experience informs my optimism. So I'm a computer scientist and an economist is my background. I worked at Microsoft for nine years. And during that time, the Internet didn't exist yet. While I was there, the Internet came along. And I can tell you, sitting in the doors of Microsoft back then, even when we saw the Internet happening and we started to partake in it, we never could have predicted that people would have today a smartphone in their pocket that was more powerful than the computer that sat on my desk back then, and that there would be all these companies that were born that created these applications that people use in their everyday lives. We couldn't even imagine or dream of it back then. You know, I was working there when Excel and Lotus 123 became the spreadsheets that became popular. They weren't in production when I started at Microsoft. Yes, that put 400,000 accountants of a certain type out of their jobs. But guess what? 600,000 new type of accounting jobs came forward with more highly skilled labor. So to me, I look at examples from the past to inform how I think about this for the future. And one of the themes of the report is that it can be that technology destroys some jobs while it's creating others, but the one thing we can be certain of is, is it's going to disrupt a lot of jobs. So how can we best adapt to this new technological world? Well, I think we can make sure that everybody has access to digital technology. I think sometimes we, you know, sit in countries like the UK or France or the US or Japan and we think, oh, everybody has a smartphone. Well, no, many people have phones, but only 12% of people are connected to the internet. And so we have to look for where are their gaps and where are their places where today we have the most social inequity and how do we make sure we get phones into those people's hands and get them connected? So a perfect example is Indonesia, a middle-income country. They have made a commitment to get 100 million people in the next few years access to broadband. And I can tell you those are on some very remote islands in Indonesia that you can only get to by boats. But once you have access to the Internet so many great things come forward, whether it's saving a dollar a day, whether it's getting a little bit more education for your child, whether it's making sure you know when the health services are actually readily available in the nearby village so you don't have to travel there by foot or by boat and then not find the health services there. But we have to make sure as a world that those policies are put in place and the investments are made so that everybody gets to participate. Now, that's a great example from Indonesia. But as your report on digital lives makes clear, there are still more than three billion unconnected people in the world. And they tend to be women, the poor and those who live in rural and remote areas, which are obviously the most economically or less valuable parts of the world. So there is quite a tough business case to make to connect all these parts of the world. How are we going to connect those three billion people? Well, when I look at what India is doing with their biometric system called Adahar, they are making sure everybody in the country, whether you can read or not, biometrically now has an ID number. What that means is that if you're in a very remote northern state in India, that's where a lot of the poverty is, that 
you now get government services. So when that kerosene subsidy comes out that you use to heat your home in the cold of the winter, you actually have access to it now. And guess what? The government has less graft in the system because somebody else isn't stealing that payment that you're due as a woman. The other thing is when you have a system like that where everybody starts to get connected and you get the right regulations and policies, we know that when women have money put in their bank account, they actually act differently. They both invested in the health of themselves and their children. And guess what? We have two great studies now that show that they start to move from the informal sector to the formal economy. So that is an example of where people, when connected to the right services and digitally done, you are bringing everybody in. And that's a government example. When I think of another example, which is a business example, there's a young woman who's created a business called Talal. She went out and interviewed 3,500 people on the continent of Africa, and she figured out a way digitally to look at the actions they were already taking and realize that they were actually credit worthy when a bank might not see them as credit worthy. And so she's now given out over 9 million loans in five different countries pulled people in who now have access to credit. And guess what? Her repayment rate is 92%. So again, that's bringing people into credit that wouldn't otherwise have access because they can't build that formal type of credit that a bank might look for. So those are two examples of how you start to pull everybody in and everybody forward. One of the concerns that you flag in your reports is that the governance of the internet, such as it is, is very much a kind of rich country game. How can we make sure that the less developed countries also have a voice in the future of our digital world? Well, I think there's a challenge there for certain. And in addition to what you're saying, both them having a voice in what's created, but also a voice in what they do in their own country. When I talk to policymakers who are trying to figure out the regulations around these issues, about, okay, what should the internet look like? How do we connect people? Many of those people, to be honest, don't have the technical skills to know what the regulations should look like. So I think one of the things that it's up to the many institutions around the world to help with, such as the World Bank, such as some of the other technology institutions, FinTech is doing a great job of this, is to make sure we help bring those people along technically who are the policymakers and help them learn from other countries who are at the same level of wealth because they can move along the curve digitally The way other countries have moved along the curve in health or in agriculture, they can look at their peers and say, what did they do? What policies did they put in place? What investments did they make at our same level of wealth? We need to make sure we support those people in making the right policies and making sure they're as digitally literate as they can possibly be. Okay, final question is that you make a very powerful moral exhortation in these reports that we need to do better. How confident are you that this will be translated into practical policy following this week's IMF and World Bank meetings? Well, I don't have much belief that a report that sits on a shelf does much (laughs) if it sits there. However, I think a report that economically shows what the reality is around the world and then follows up with policy recommendations that then are carried forward and then country leaders and finance ministers 
and ministers who are working at on the digital level, when we get them together and we go country by country and have discussions with them, that's when I see global movement happen. And again, the reason I'm somewhat optimistic about that is I've seen it happen in health over time. Why have childhood deaths been cut in half? It's because countries learned from one another what works in terms of malaria bed nets, in terms of vaccination, in terms of a health system. And when they learned from one another and the global conversation helped them move their in-country investments and conversations along, those are the kind of results we got. And I think that's possible in technology as well. Melinda, thank you very much. Thank you for your time, John. That was Melinda Gates talking to John Thornhill. And if you'd like to hear more on this topic, look out for Tectonic, our weekly show on the way technology is transforming our world, which comes out on Wednesdays. You can find all our podcasts at ft.com slash podcasts or subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher and all the usual podcast platforms. <laughs>